Welcome to the tape ministry of Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, whose mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. It is our desire that the tapes of these services and messages from God's Word will touch lives deeply and encourage a closer walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you wish to contact the Church for any reason, please phone us at 253-851-7779 or write us at Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church. Post Office Box 829, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. At the end of the first section of the recording, please turn the tape over to hear the rest of the service. Now may God richly bless you as you join the people of Chapel Hill in worshiping the Lord and listening to the good news of Jesus Christ. Presbyterian the beaches of Normandy or other such beaches. The men and women who walked through the jungles of Vietnam. It was you who were touched by this in a way that none of us who have never been under fire could never understand. You didn't have to use your imagination, for you were there. You have been there. You have tasted the acrid metal taste of fear in your mouth. You know what it was like. Perhaps you same veterans whose fallen colleagues we celebrate today will find it easier to understand last week's text and appreciate this week's text. Last week it was the final battle. Jesus, the hero on the white horse, no longer meek and mild Jesus on a donkey, but Jesus on a, a charger, a white stallion, leading his hosts of heavenly soldiers into battle. And it's Satan and the, his two evil henchmen, the sea beast and the land beast, they have done their best to rally humanity against the one true king. But in the end, our hero dominates. No, he decimates the enemies. That was it. That week, the battle was the fought. This week, the battle is over. The fighting is done. The war that is truly, truly the war to end all wars. Or did those words come back to haunt some people? The war that is truly the war to end all wars is completed. And all who are battle-scarred and weary in this next chapter discover a place of peace and sanctuary, of safety and comfort, of joy and wholeness and shalom that they didn't believe was possible. Does that sound good to you? It sounds good to me. Let us turn to this great chapter which deserves an entire sermon series of, on its own. Chapter 21 of Revelation. And here's one of those times when I want you to... You may read if you like, but I would encourage some of you who are better at envisioning it, close your eyes. Close your eyes and listen. Try to see in your mind's eye what John saw in this glorious vision, and especially the last part of the chapter. Here, experience the Word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, 
And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper. Clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates. And its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of every city walls, of the city walls, were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysophase, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamp and the lamb is its light. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. 
Our hearts long for such a place. Reveal more of it to us this day. Amen. How many of you have ever tried to imagine what heaven will look like, be like? Raise your hand. Now, here's a chance to be really honest. How many of you had a hard time getting excited about going there? Raise your hand. Now, I'm not talking about being with the Lord. We want that. Those of us who love Christ look forward to that. But I have found it hard to get excited about living in a place that has been described to me these few decades of life. A place of clouds and harps. Come on, be honest. Does that turn any of you on? I mean, eternity on a cloud with a harp? Please. I mean, if that's all I got to... I mean, if that's it, Lord, I'll take it. But, you know, a three-wood on an immaculate fairway, that's... That's glory. Harps are fine taken in small, small, small doses. We were not created for clouds and harps. We were created for dirt and trees. We were created for mountains and rivers. We were created for blue skies and forests and deserts. We were created to look up at clouds, not sit upon them. God created this earth specifically for us. Radical environmentalists will tell you differently. They'll tell you that we are at best just a part of creation, perhaps worse. But that is not what the Scripture reveals. The Bible tells us that this wonderful earth, God's glorious creation, is the setting in which God placed the jewel of His creation, us. The early chapters of Genesis tell us of that first creation, which the Bible calls the Garden of Eden. It tells us of God having this brainstorm. He decided to create a universe. And we watch in amazement as the Word of God, the Logos of God, allows His creative imagination to unfold, culminating in the creation of man as male and female. Now, when did that occur according to Genesis 1? Genesis 1.1. When did that creation take place? In the beginning. In the beginning. In this morning's text, we come to the end. I was surprised last night as I was re- working through it again to turn the page and see, oh, this is it. That's the last page. And we got one more page to go and we're done. Then we have to start all over again. Next year, in fact, we almost will. We're going to have a series in Exodus. But we come to the end. The end of human time as we know it. But what do we discover when we come to that end? It's not an end at all. It is the beginning. Again, it is a new beginning. Chapter 21 is the most beautiful of visions, perhaps in all of Scripture. It looks ahead to a new day, a new creation. And actually, it looks ahead to a new recreation. Notice verse 5 of chapter 21. If you have your Bibles open, and I'm sure you all do, you students of the Scriptures... Do you see anything unusual? Do you notice anything unusual about it? First of all, who is speaking? Who is speaking here? The one sitting upon the throne, which we take to be God. Although the Lamb is also on the throne, so it's kind of confusing sometimes. 
Now, why is this unusual, this voice speaking from the throne? Because in all of the 20 chapters of Revelation that we have studied, this is the first time that God, the enthroned one, has spoken since Revelation 1, verse 8. Can you imagine that? There he declared, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and who is to come, the Almighty One. And then the Almighty One remains silent. And throughout the seven seals, throughout the seven trumpets, throughout the seven bowls, the Almighty One upon the throne simply watches. He says nothing. He watches what is unfolding before him. But finally, the enthroned one speaks. And what are the first words out of his mouth after all of these chapters? I am making what? Everything new. I am making everything new. Now notice what he does not say, and it is a different Greek form if he was saying this. He does not say, I am making all new things. He says, I'm making all things new. There's a big difference. He says, I'm not throwing it all out and starting it over. He says, I'm taking that which I created and I'm going to make it over again. Remake it, recreate it, make it new. It is a recreation that we're seeing taking place here. It is the earth and the heavens as they were intended to be from the beginning before sin fouled it and tainted it. So when we look at this wonderful vision, we are catching a glimpse of the glorious creation that God intended from the start. Throughout this, this is what we should have seen. Not, and this is also a glimpse of our eternity. Not us sitting on tops of clouds in heaven. No, we look forward, and this is the first time really this hit me. I will spend eternity on a new earth. Created by God for that purpose. Whatever we know as heaven right now is a temporary spot, but the Bible again and again speaks that ultimately the consummation of all things will be a new creation, a new earth, and we will walk on dirt, and we will look upon the water, and we will see clouds in the sky. And all those angels up there, if they want to play, that's fine. But I'll have my grass. This new new paradise, though, it's kind of surprising to us because we expect... What? If you're going to get a paradise restored, what do you expect? A garden. And it's not a garden. It is a city. One wonders why. Perhaps because the things that are often the ones, things that we want to escape from the city will not be there. The fear, the hubbub, the bustle. All of the worst about the city that we want to run away from will not be there. But what will be great about the city and what you enjoy about cities is the purity of relationship with others who love God and love you as God intended us to love. So we are surprised to discover it is not a city, it is not a, it is not a garden, it is not a city either, because later in 22 we'll discover it is actually a city garden. It is a wonderful melding of the two into one. A river right down the middle of it. Parks on all sides. It is a city garden. This is the new Jerusalem, he says. Now don't, don't be dis- confused if you... If you If you miss this, you're you're missing an important one. This is not the Jerusalem that is in Palestine. Thank God. As we will see, it has very little in common with it. But it is the Jerusalem in the sense that that is where God has met humanity. Just as God once did outside of the walls of Jerusalem. He did it in a temple, yes, but more importantly, God met humanity on a hill called Calvary outside of the city walls. And it was there that Jesus Christ... And brought humanity and the Father together once again for the first time since 
Eden. Notice how New Jerusalem comes into existence. Is it the work of a new Solomon, a brilliant man who pulls together all of the finest craftsmen and thinkers and architects of the world? Is that how it happens? Is it perhaps a, a, a new Nehemiah who takes that which is broken but rebuilds it into something glorious on God's behalf? Is that how it happens? Is this the work of our creative hands? Not at all. What does it say? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, where? Coming down from heaven, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. There's that bride image again. This new Jerusalem, whatever it will be, is entirely God's work We have nothing to do with it. All our utopian dreams have come to naught. But it comes to us ready-made. And it is like no prefab house you have ever seen. In a moment, we're going to talk about life in the New Jerusalem. But before we do, could we just for a moment dwell on the description of this glorious city? I know that it's symbolic. You know it's symbolic. Uh, That's the story of Revelation. But it's beautiful. And it may be too overwhelming for us to take in, but let's try, shall we? Let's be overwhelmed for a moment with the grandeur of this vision. First of all, the New Jerusalem is huge. Huge. Remember back in chapter 11 when John was given a a reed by an angel and said, now go measure the temple, remember that? It was a river reed. This time the job's too big for John. It is the angel who has the measuring rod and it's gold, no less. And it is his responsibility to measure out the city gates and walls. And we discover that the city of New Jerusalem is laid out square. It is in a square. The walls are as long as they are wide. And how long are they? 12,000 stadia. First of all, I point out to you the importance of the number 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. It's another way of saying it's big, really big. It's perfect, really perfect. It's perfect and big. But do you know how big it is just for the fun of it? Even if it is a symbol, 1,400 miles long. The walls are 1,400 miles long. And 1,400 miles this direction, another 1,400 stretching from our coast halfway across the United States is this new Jerusalem. Do you know how many square miles that is in the new city? 2,250,000 square miles. Now that is urban planning. (laughs) But that's not all. Be ready to be reboggled. Because not only are the walls 1,400 miles long and 1,400 miles long the other direction, they are also 1,400 miles high. That's what verse 16 tells us. They are as high as they are long and wide. 1,400 miles tall. It is a perfect cube. It is a 1,400-mile cube. Now, we find this very impressive, but we will find it difficult to catch the meaning that the first century Jews would have caught when they heard the description of the New Jerusalem as 1,400 by 1,400 by 1,400 miles. A perfect cube. What other structure do they recognize immediately as being a perfect cube, as tall and long as it is high? Not just the temple, the sanctuary, the holy of holies. It is a perfect cube. It was instructed by God to be a perfect cube. What took place in the holy of holies? It was where God met humankind. 
This is the place where the high priest met with God once a year, and it was believed to be the dwelling place of God. Now, do you begin to grasp the meaning of the imagery as John is unfolding it to us? We're going to come back to it in a moment, but just live in that for a moment. 1,400-mile cubed city. Let's continue. What are the building materials? Concrete? Steel? Adobe? Nothing so mundane as that. The walls are built out of pure gold, but gold like we do not know. Gold that is so pure you can see through it. And a beautiful green stone called Jasper. Main Street, too, is paved with more of that transparent gold. It's hard to know what the meaning of this is. Is it because it is so precious or it is because that which is most precious to us is the building material in heaven? I don't know which it is. Either way, it's, it's powerful to imagine the purity of the building material such that you can see right through the gold that covers the ground. When we pour a foundation for our home, we pour it out of concrete and we use rebar. Nothing much to look, like, look at, but who cares? It will be covered up. But in the New Jerusalem, there will be foundation stones that are laid for it. Foundation stones that are, that are huge. And they are too beautiful for words. Even the foundation. The first layer of foundation is a green stone, jasper. More of the same. The second layer, if you can imagine it in your eyes, and these are stones 60, 70, 80 feet long. More? I mean, it's a 1,400-mile wall. Maybe they're a mile long. The second layer of stone is blue sapphire. And on it goes, 12 different layers of stone, all of them a different, beautiful, precious stone forming the foundation upon which these walls of gold sit and, and jasper sit. Each one of these stones would look lovely as a one-carat bauble around my beloved's neck. Can you imagine, though, it is these most precious of stones that God uses for His most basic building materials. Nothing but the best for the New Jerusalem. And how about the gates? The gates were always the biggest part of the, of the city because the, they were protected by a gatehouse, so they would be larger. The, 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 the gatehouse would be larger than the walls around it, if you can imagine that. And there are three in each of the walls. And what is it that comprises, what are the gates themselves made out of? A pearl. One pearl each. Now that is a big oyster. Of all the stones, of all that was precious to people at this time, the most precious of all the stones was the pearl uh, of, the, of precious, uh, I don't know what you call it, it's not a stone, but it was the most precious of all. It was the pearl. Pearl that is 1,400 miles high. Indeed, a pearl of great price. Is your imagination trying to wrap around this? Well, as glorious as the city itself is, and there's more to it, we ain't seen nothing yet. I will ask you this. What is the most noteworthy quality of this new Jerusalem? And I will give you a hint. With... All of this beautiful new Jerusalem, its splendid walls, its glorious gates, its breathtaking streets. There is something missing, something conspicuously absent from this new Jerusalem. What is it? Ah, yes, but you, what was it? The temple. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city. 
We say, how can you reconstruct Jerusalem without a temple? It was the darkest moment in Jewish history when the, when the city was taken over and the temple was torn down <coughs> and burned to nothing, destroyed, utterly destroyed. How can you rebuild Jerusalem without a temple? Ah, but that's not exactly what it says. It does have a temple. It's just not a building. You see it? What does it say? It says, verse, it says, quote, The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. That's why the whole city is built in a cube. That's why the whole city is a holy of holies. Because God himself is going to take residence up there. They wouldn't need a special building in which to meet him. They will meet him on the street. They will meet him by the park. They will meet him near the river. They will meet him face to face. We will meet him face to face. We don't need a temple. Glory. It's back to Eden again. Remember the story? God walked in the garden with his beloved children. They talked as friends face to face. But that changed with the fall. Remember when Moses wanted to see him? And God said, no man can look upon me and survive. Moses had to wear a little mask when he came down off because just even though he's, God guarded his face from seeing him, the radiance of God was such that he glowed. And when he came back, he had to wear a mask to cover up the glow because the people couldn't bear even to look upon the reflected glory of God in Moses' face, much less into the face of God himself. But that was when we had old broken down bodies. That was when we had old broken down saggy corneas. Little inside joke. We can tell who was not in worship all of the time. (laughs) But now all things have been made new. Now we have resurrection bodies. Now we have resurrection eyes and we can take it. And we can look God in the face. Not that it isn't bright though. As someone else pointed out, there's something else that's missing in Jerusalem. And it's the sun and the moon. So this reconstructed universe does not include a sun and a moon. But who needs them? Because as the text says, the glory of God was the light and the Lamb was the lamp. Isn't that a great line? The Lamb was the lamp. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, we took it as metaphor. Not in New Jerusalem. It is literal there. The whole city, all 2.250 million square miles of it, lit up by the radiant glory of God and the Lamb. This is among the most wondrous of texts I think we will ever read. As I was reading it last night, I regretted not having more time with this. It deserves a a month of Sundays. Now I will share with you what I consider out of this same text to be the most tender. Verse 3, take a look. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Can you imagine this? We don't need a temple because God is there. We don't need to be afraid of looking at Him in the face because we are new creations. So we will dare to look upon the face of the eternal God, but that's not enough. We will look at his face and with tears streaming down our cheeks from our memories of our life here. And the eternal God will reach out his hand and take our cheek and wipe our tears away. There's nothing a daddy hates much worse than to watch his little girl cry. 
But there's not hardly anything more tender either. Because it, it's a wonderful opportunity to fold her into your arms and to wipe this cheek and that cheek and feel the heat of the passion because you know it's going to be all right. It's no big deal. Whatever is tragic to her is no big deal. And whatever it is, Daddy can make it all right. I tell you, Daddy will make it all right. No more death. How can that be? Because in the 14th verse of the last chapter, we read death and Hades have been destroyed. They were thrown into the lake of fire. It's gone. No more cancer. No more molested children. No more war. No more more swollen-bellied babies. No more broken marriages. No more broken hearts. No more horrific headlines to greet us at the breakfast table. No more abortion. No more gang violence. No more dishonest politicians. No more nuclear madness. No more guns. No more slaps. No more hurtful words. And no more Memorial Days. Everything we will want to remember, everyone we will want to remember will be standing right there beside us. Every Memorial Day we have the bugler play taps. It's the universal signal that the day is over. It is the commemoration of the fact that for those who have fallen, their day on this earth is done. And I'm reminded of a story I heard from Jim Singleton, a great pastor and friend of mine. Until the funeral of Princess Diana, the last big funeral in England was that of Winston Churchill in 1965. I remember it. I remember watching it on our little tiny gray, black and white TV. Before Churchill died, he planned his own funeral service. And he used... Uh, which he planned to to take place in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He used the the eloquent Anglican liturgy and all of the great hymns of the church. From them he selected his. And at the end of the service, Churchill stipulated that a bugler would be positioned high in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. Thirty-eight of us will be there in three weeks. And he played taps from that place in the dome, that universal symbol that the day is over, that the end has come. But immediately after this came a dramatic turn, as Churchill had instructed, for after the taps was finished, another bugler on the other side of the dome played the notes of Reveille. It's time to get up. It's time to get up. It's time to get up in the morning. For most of us, our focus is on this life. As we plan our lives, we look ahead and hope for 80 years, perhaps. Some of you who are 80 say, I don't mind 90. (laughs) But every one of us is sitting here this morning. Everyone who is here this day will one day breathe our last. Our day will be done. Now, if this life is all there is, then that last breath, the playing of taps, will be indeed a sorrowful occasion for us. But if, as this great book promises... There is something more, something glorious waiting for us, 
and for all who have loved Jesus, a new Jerusalem. What a glorious hope. Death isn't the ending. It is the beginning of a new day. It is the beginning of an eternity spent with God face to face. No more death, no more tears, no more pain. For the old things have passed away and the new have come. And what glory that will be. If you agree, let me ask you to stand and join with me in the singing of the doxology. central to Jesus. It's best symbolized in the biblical story by the spiritual and communal disciplines of Shabbat or Sabbath in which people stop working and let the land rest and make sure that everyone has enough. It's so important, this redistributive principle in biblical economics, uh, as testified in the manna story where God gives the bread as a gift and the people go out and gather it. And the point of the story is that the, instru- the instructions, if you go out and gather a lot, don't gather too much. If you go out and gather only a little, make sure you have enough. That redistributive principle is so important that in the midst of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, forgive us our debt... Jubilee principle, as we forgive our debtors, give us today enough bread. He's going all the way back to that ancient uh, tradition and situating it right at the heart of the faith of discipleship. Well, the question, of course, is we are a very long way in the church uh, of embodying this tradition. We are mostly conformed and... um, collaborative with the dominant economy around us. That's why we've got rich churches and poor churches. That's why the church has very little to say in the public square about the increasing concentration of wealth, about the jackpot economy. I think we need to do four things in order to uh, rediscover our tradition. We're going to need to spend a lot of time in Bible study. That's one thing. Uh, uh, Recovering and rehabilitating that great biblical witness of the economy of grace, I think we're going to have to do some theological rehabilitation because, quite frankly, most of our theology in our churches, and this is uh, Presbyterian church is no exception, is functionally docetic. That means that we've got all this spiritual stuff going on up here and we don't really see the connection with our material life. That is the earliest heresy in Christianity called docetism that tried to argue that Jesus wasn't really a human being, he was just a spirit. Most of us follow a Jesus who's sort of a free-floating spirit, kind of with a megaphone shouting down from a blimp, come on up here, the weather's fine. Um, Whereas the true Jesus of Nazareth is walking among the losers of the jackpot economy of his time, preaching good news, which was good news, to the poor. Um, So we need to read the Bible. We need to have a little bit of theological reimagination. I guess I'm not supposed to use that word among Presbyterian circles. Um, the third thing we need is, um, is a discernment of our times, and the fourth thing we need is an embodiment of alternatives. All right, fine. Great. 
blah, blah, blah. We're sitting here thinking this is too overwhelming. It's just too much. I can't take on the global economy. I can't even take on uh, the county I live in. The, the most we can manage is to try to be the best Christians we can be in our households. And so a great deal of Christian time and energy goes into uh, trying to make sure that the household is managed well in, in, a, in a moral uh, kind of culture. And of course, that's very, very important and very, very good. And it's also very, very understandable. Society is complex, it is overwhelming, and the church has not equipped us to think critically either about the tradition of faith or about the times we live in. For that matter, the Jubilee tradition and the Sabbath economics tradition of the Bible has been largely marginalized and trivialized and ignored in our churches. You don't hear a lot of talk from the pulpit about Sabbath economics. So we find ourselves rather under-equipped for the times. So the jackpots keep on ringing and the losers keep on uh, dying or killing themselves and we're just trying to manage our Christian households. Well, the problem is, see, that sooner or later the pathology of the public culture seeps into our households. We cannot finally protect our households from the strains and the sicknesses of a globalizing economy that's making a few people rich and a lot of people poor. We can't finally insulate, no matter how far out into the suburbs we go, graffiti's going to show up sooner or later. Homelessness is going to stalk us. It's not just an inner city problem. And most of the dramatic shootings from Columbine on down have happened in the suburbs. They've been suburban realities over the last few years. We cannot escape this world. So let's go ahead and start with the household. Let's just try to start our theological, biblical, uh, social reconstruction at the level of the household. I don't have any problem with that. And after all, don't we have a huge cultural struggle in the, today in modern America over family values? Let's talk for a minute about family values. You're thinking to yourself, oh boy, here we go. Because, of course, family values have been a cause for polarization in the churches. I think one of the reasons family values is a cause for polarization is that we're only talking about um, part of the question. There's been some interesting uh, work done recently uh, theologically in the Apostle Paul, particularly the work of Scott Barchi, who's the uh, professor of Christian origins at UCLA. And he's pointed out something very simple. And I want to uh, kind of use that as the, as the biblical springboard to see if we can uh, make sense of how to bring this great concept of Jubilee economics into our daily life. I want to read a text that, well, doesn't get a lot of airtime in the... Um, contemporary family values discourse because I suppose it seems to cut against the grain. You know the, you know the text from Mark. Um, his mother and his brother came and they were standing outside and they sent for Jesus to call him. And he was inside the house and a crowd was sitting around him and he, uh, they said to him, your mother and br your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my mother and my sister and my brother. Now, Dr. Dobson doesn't spend a lot of time on this text. And probably the reason is it appears at first glance that this text actually is sort of undermining, quote, family values. It's somehow 
theologically eclipsing the uh, household uh, in favor of some other uh, greater value. And, uh, of course, if we're, if we're trying to shrink and defend our Christian values at the level of the household, what we want to do is bolster the family, not dismantle it. So this text like this are a little bit of a, a little bit of a challenge. But what if we're reading it exactly backwards? What if this text isn't suggesting that we need to do away with the family in order to have some other idealized or spiritualized notion of um, Christian family? What if this text is saying we need to extend the kinship structure to include more and more and more people? Not to shut down the house, but to open up the household as a way of life for the whole church. Here's what Barchi is saying. A lot of anthropological, historical anthropological work being done recently in New Testament, and what they're telling us is uh, the first century, surprise, surprise, had a culture just like ours. And one of the bedrocks of that culture was the kinship system. And the kinship system worked sort of like this. There was a, there was a sharp distinction between the private, the domain of the household, and the public, the domain of the polis, the city. Women, by and large, were confined to the private world of the household. Strict gender-defined roles. Men were uh, the people who kind of found their careers in the public world of the polis. In the public world, men were constantly competing with each other for honor. Every other male was a threat to my status and my honor. So it was kind of a male domination system. That is, males struggling to dominate other males to climb the corporate to, to climb the ladder. In other words, it sounds very familiar. I mean, after all, we know that still today in our culture, men still get their sense of self-esteem and identity and worth from achieving in competitive uh, challenge um, uh, a sort of a ladder-climbing, honor-building, uh, esteem-accumulating um, identity. Whereas women still traditionally, in the, tradi- in the traditional view, are uh, at home sort of saying, it's okay, dear, and, and trying to make peace and trying to get everybody to talk around the table because the public culture of the male competition doesn't always sit well with the private culture of the household. And hence we have this culture war between uh, public competition and, and private coherence still today. But in antiquity, it was extremely rigid. Women didn't go outside into public to compete. Only men did that. Men didn't trust anyone outside their household. But inside the household, that was the primary definition of solidarity. You, were, you belonged to your brothers and sisters. They were your kin. You were loyal to them unto death. Today in, in modern America, our primary emotional matrix revolves around our spouse, partner, Right? It's romantic love. That's our, that's our emotional center. But in antiquity, there wasn't such an idea of romantic love. It was the kinship structure that was the emotional center of the house. That's why you'd move into the spouse's house and become part of the extended family. That's why the stories in the Bible of brothers betraying brothers, from Cain and Abel all the way down the line, are so horrific to the ancient mind, the concept of the kinship structure against itself was unimaginable. It was the symbol of the deterioration of culture. So here comes the New Testament. And what it's doing is inviting 
everybody to act as if they were a part of the same household. The rhetoric used here in this text with Jesus, and even more profoundly in the writings of the Apostle Paul, is kinship language. Barchi's done a little bit of um, statistical work in Paul's writings, and he's found that um, the word brothers, brothers and sisters, that is either brother, the, the singular, or brothers, meaning correctly in Greek, brothers and sisters, uh, is used um, more than 60 times in the writings of the Apostle Paul. He's constantly addressing people as brother and sister. Now we think, well, that's, that's not very revolutionary. We do that in church too, at least the low church does that. The high church, we don't feel so comfortable calling each other brother and sister. Uh, but, you know, in, in, the, in the storefront churches and the old kind of white gospel music, you know, it's brother, sister, it's all good like that. But, but we, we sophisticated Presbyterians, uh, we, we don't like to use that language. It's too familiar. Exactly. 